0: open your Bibles this evening to Isaiah chapter 13. And by God's grace, we're going to get all the way to chapter 23 tonight. So <laughs> I heard some laughing. That's good. So yeah, we're going to be covering 10 chapters. And the reason for that is because they actually all go together. Um, it's uh, two series of oracles uh, prophecies about coming judgment that clearly display the sovereignty of Yahweh in both judgment against evil, the preservation of God's people in the midst of it, in the unification of all nations. So that's kind of the big overarching theme of these uh, 10 chapters, and there's two major parts to it. Uh, But before we dive into it, there's a a couple of things that I want to share with you tonight that are things that I have learned over the years, some of them fairly recently, actually, uh, that really help me understand these types of sections in the Bible that have to do with prophecy and also have to do with um, eschatological realities, which would be things that are about the end of the end of days, okay? So... These 10 chapters deal with those things, and so I wanted to mention a few of these things to you. The five things that I wanted to mention are these, okay? I'm going to talk about prophecy briefly, the day of the Lord, uh, so that, because that's mentioned quite a bit in the chapters that we're going over, um, the words of Scripture, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, uh, Zion, because that can be a little bit confusing, and also Babylon, okay? Okay? So I'm going to mention these five things real quickly. Prophecy, a couple things I want you to know about it in the Bible. First, uh, prophetic oracles often jump from current situations to future and back with no warning, okay? And that can be a little bit confusing when you're reading through sections and it does it in these chapters where it's clearly talking about the Babylon of uh, Isaiah's day and then it's obviously clearly at times talking about the great Babylon in the end of days, right? And so prophecy does this, and it can be a little bit confusing if you don't realize that it does it, and it doesn't warn you that it's doing it. Um, So that's something that I wanted to point out about it. Also, uh, prophecies of the Messiah often combine the first and second coming in the same context, okay? And so that's uh, something that for us is a little bit confusing, but for the people that originally were reading it, it was all future, Right? And the Christ event is between the first and second coming. So we live in the last days. I don't know if you realize that, but that's what the Bible tells us in the New Testament is that we live in the last days. And we don't know how long that period of time is, but it is the last days. And the invasion of the kingdom of heaven has begun. The king of heaven entered into this realm, and the invasion of his kingdom has begun. And we live at the in this period um, that is uh, known as the Christ event, you know, and in the in the messianic reign of Christ is referred to a lot of times in prophecies, both uh, in combination of the first and second coming. And so you'll see things that have to do with the first coming, and then you'll th- see things that have to do with the second coming, and just to let you know, that's normal, okay? Uh, also, prophets themselves were often unclear about the details of their prophetic message, okay? So they simply got something from God. And a lot of times they're like, I don't know what this means, right? They just share it with us and they don't fully understand it either. And then the beauty of it is that once it comes to pass, everyone goes, oh, that's what that meant, (laughs) right? So that's kind of the thing about prophecy is that until it happens, we don't really clearly know what some of these things mean. And even the prophets themselves, a lot of times didn't know what they meant, okay? So if you ever read prophecy and you're like, I have no idea what that means, it's okay. That's perfectly fine. It is there for you to know after the fact, oh, it happened exactly the way God said, you know? Um, Also, much of messianic prophecy will be fulfilled at the eschatological end of this age, and that would involve the day of the Lord, the second coming, and the millennial reign of Christ, okay? So just so you realize a lot of the stuff that has to do with messianic prophecy deals with the end of the end of days, okay? And that leads us into the day of the Lord, all right? The day of the Lord is mentioned several times in these chapters, and it is a reference to the eschatological judgment of God on the evil of this age. It is also referred to as the great tribulation, okay? So the day of the Lord is not a day per se. It's not a 24-hour day. It is a period of time that leads up to the second coming. And so It's a period of judgment. So it is a period of unprecedented divine wrath. That's one thing to note. So it's a period of unprecedented divine wrath. So it is unlike anything we have seen yet, okay? It is also a period of bringing God's elect to repentance. So in the midst of this divine judgment that is unprecedented, there are those who have been chosen by God who will repent during this judgment and come to faith And also it is a period uh, that uh, uh, culminates in the second coming. So it leads up to the second coming, okay? Thirdly, the words of Scripture. Something I want to mention about this. This is something I learned recently that has really kind of like excited me extremely. I just asked Pastor Kelly. I've been very excited about this particular theological truth. But the words of Scripture are the divine perspective of the things of Scripture, okay? And if that confused you, it's okay. I, uh, But let me try to flesh it out and explain it for you. What it means is, is that the Bible is not a history book, even though it contains history, okay? The Bible is not a history book, even though it contains history. And I will admit that for much of my life and even pro- professional career, I viewed it very much as a history book in a lot of ways. And I was very convicted when I came to realize this truth and realized that it is not a history book by nature. It is the divine perspective of the things that are written about, okay? And that means that it's not trying to tell us about the things themselves. They're trying. Uh, scripture is trying to give us God's perspective of whatever it is he's talking about, and that includes what we're going to see tonight. So... When we get too focused on the dates and circumstances that we are reading about, we can miss the divine purpose and the words about those circumstances, okay? So when you get too hung up on the details, you miss the big picture. Does that make sense? That's kind of the idea. Um, Think of it like this. When an artist paints a picture, when you look at that picture, that picture is the artist's um, uh, perception of whatever it is that they made, right? That is their perception of it. Now, there may be things that are um, intentionally not detailed in that painting. And if you were to bring the detail into view and change it, it would no longer be what the artist intended, okay? And that's the idea. Zion. So that's mentioned quite a bit in these chapters. And I want to mention what it is because it can also be a little bit confusing because it happens to be three different things in one, okay? So Zion is the city of God, okay? It is also the people of God, and it is the messianic kingdom of God, okay? So therefore, in different ways, Zion is used in the Scriptures to refer to these three things, okay? So it is a place, Jerusalem, okay? It is also the people of God, and it is also the realm that God rules. Does that make sense? So, it can be used in these three ways, and so to bring a little bit of clarity, that is what Zion is. Babylon. Babylon, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of Babylons in the Bible. Um, You know, there's the Tower of Babel. There's the Babylon who, you know, took uh, Israel into captivity. There's the the Babylon the Great and the Revelation, you know, it's like, oh, so what is Babylon? Well, Babylon simply is a cipher for human pride, idolatry, and rebellion, okay? So, when you read Babylon, it isn't necessarily talking about the Babylon of Isaiah's day. It is talking about, really, humanity in their sin and their rebellion and their pride, okay? Does that make sense? So, Wanted to lay those things out, so as we go through it, hopefully, it'll bring some clarity to everything. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so, as we go into this section, we're going to see the sovereignty of Yahweh, and we're going to see it played out, like I mentioned, in judgment um, against evil, the uh, preservation of God's people, and the unification of of all nations to the Lord. See, R.C. Sproul said this, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. And I would have to say that if I'm being honest about myself, a lot of the times I'm operating that way, you know, where I I really think, well, it's not gonna get done if I don't do it myself, right? And that's a real problem because most of the things that we want done, we're actually incapable of doing ourselves. (laughs) So... Therefore, we really need to put our full weight down on the fact that God is sovereign and capable of doing that which is impossible for us to do. Okay? So, very important for us to lean fully into the reality that God is fully in control and able to do what we beseech Him to do. God is going to, He is and will judge human pride, idolatry, and rebellion. These are Big things about what we're going to see in these chapters. God is also preserving for Himself all the elect, um, but He's prefer, uh, He's not protecting them from suffering itself. Okay, but what He is protecting them from is is being no more. All right. So when when the Bible speaks of the preservation of His people, it has to do with the fact that we don't suffer the second death mainly. Right. That He preserves us for eternity for Himself. Okay. But it doesn't mean that God's people don't suffer in this age. And sometimes people miss that. Um, Also, God is calling his people from all nations to repentance and faith. And that's a huge part of Isaiah's message in the book of Isaiah. And I think a lot of times we miss that because uh, he adds that on constantly into all of the prophecies that he gives. Smiting the wicked, preserving the faithful, and... Healing the repentant. That's really what we're going to see. Okay? So, with that, let's dive into it. And by God's grace, I will do this in a timely manner. So, in chapters 13 through 20, what we see is that Yahweh, you can flip to the next slide, uh, Yahweh will judge the prideful kingdoms of the world. Okay? And that, so, that's what we're going to see in 13 through 20 what we'll see when we get to it in 21 through 23 is that he's also going to judge the idolatry of the world, okay? But in this first set of oracles, he is judging the kingdoms themselves. And so it starts off with Babylon. God's sovereignty over Babylon in world history is what we clearly see in chapters 13 through 14, 27. And it starts out here... um, we'll read uh, the first part here in 13. The oracles concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger my proudly exalted ones. So right here in the beginning, we see that he is summoning his army to a holy war. And we see in uh, verse four that he is mustering um, a worldwide army. It says, the Lord of hosts is mustering a a host for battle. And so he is calling this army to battle um, that is a huge army from across the world And this is a holy war. We see that this is causing great terror for the rest of the world, okay? Uh, In verse 6, behold, the day, or sorry, verse 6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. And then we see in verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. And so this is the judgment that I was talking about, that end of day's judgment and what... uh, we don't have time to see all the things in here tonight, but what I want you to know is that it kind of goes back and forth between the actual destruction of Babylon, that of Isaiah's day, and the, and the destruction of human sin at the end of days. Does that make sense? So it does kind of bounce around between those things as it goes through. The just purpose of this war is seen in verses nine through 13. Look at verse 11 with me. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity i will put an end to the pompous of the arrogant and lay low the pious pride of the ruthless and this is a real theme throughout these chapters is that the lord is distinctly especially in this first set of oracles he is humbling and you know punishing the prideful okay he is bringing them to an end. They really think highly of themselves, and he's gonna show them that they really aren't nearly as special as they think they are. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And if you're like me, you've experienced that a little bit yourself in life where you think a little too highly of yourself and then you make a fool of yourself and you're like, oh, well, there you go. So this is on a grand scale though, Okay. Uh, much more severe. And that's that's why it is really important, Christian friend, to learn those lessons in a small way and then humble yourself before God so that you don't have to learn them in a big way, okay? Teenagers, that's an important lesson. The end of the kingdom of Babylon we see in uh, chapters, or in in verses 17 through 22. And the day of the Lord has many interim fulfillments, okay? Okay? So the, there are many prophecies in the Bible that have more than one fulfillment. They have a lesser fulfillment and a greater fulfillment. Uh, one of those prophecies that we've seen already in the book of Isaiah would be the prophecy of Emmanuel, okay? So there was a child that was born during the time of Isaiah that was a sign to King Ahaz that he should have trusted Yahweh. And then there is obviously Jesus who is born that is the sign to everyone that they, we should trust Yahweh, right? So there is a lesser fulfillment and a greater fulfillment. Um, that is also true of the day of the Lord, but even more so, there's multiple lesser fulfillments of the day of the Lord. Uh, the overthrow of Assyria, the fall of Babylon, the destruction of Jerusalem. These are just three, and the list goes on and on. Every evil empire that has ever been undone has been a smaller fulfillment of the day of the Lord, okay? Okay? Nazi Germany would fit into that, okay? So just so you're aware, there's these lesser fulfillments, and the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord about them, but then it's also speaking of the great day of the Lord to come. So in this destruction of Babylon that it speaks of, we see that um, the God whom the day of the Lord reveals is the God who directs history now, okay? Okay? So the great day of the Lord, everyone will know his name. That is the same God who right now is controlling human history. Okay? That's an important message that we see in this section. The divine direction of, of human motivation is seen in verse 17. It says, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. Now, if you know the history, that's exactly what happened. So Babylon, who thought they were pretty awesome, and they were in their day, Um, Then the Medes and the Persians came and made them not so awesome, okay? And that is what happens in history. We see this time and time again. By the way, uh, the Lord never lets evil go unchecked. It doesn't just run rampant. He brings a stop to it. He doesn't let it continue. And that's why all of the great empires that have done great evil throughout human history have not lasted, is because he doesn't let them go unchecked. He brings it into it. And that's part of the message here. The, we see in verse 18, the, the savagery between people says, Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. And their eyes will not pity children. I, I'm increasingly shocked at the brutality that humanity is capable of against one another. And I say that having not really witnessed a ton of it myself, but simply learned about it. We live in a very protected place where we really don't see how bad things can be and are. We see images and and we're shocked, we're stunned, like how in the world could anyone do that to another human being, right? But we typically don't see it. But when we but when we see an image of it, it is, it's shocking, it's absolutely shocking, the brutality that humanity can have on one another. I uh, recently rewatched uh, the miniseries "The Band of Brothers" um, about World War II and the paratroopers. And you know they go through all this crazy stuff all through World War II, and and it follows a particular group of them that. It's a true story about all these guys and the war that they fought. And so much evil, so much death. And then towards the end of it, they discover their first concentration camp. And these guys who had been through so much, who had seen so much death and so much evil were shocked. Absolutely dismayed at what they saw and what they found. And You know, I I can't watch that episode without bawling completely. Like, it's just, it's so horrendous. You're just like, wow, how is that possible? That's what this is speaking of, this absolute atrocity. It's no wonder that God wants to judge this kind of thing, you know? Like, shouldn't really shock us (laughs) that God's like, "Eh, someone has to pay for that, (laughs) okay? So that should not be shocking to us, that that needs to be judged. Verse 19 the overthrow of pride. We see this a lot through these chapters. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the uh, Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, and God overthrew them. So he is going to undo the prideful, and they will come to an end. The, we see in verses um, 1 and 2 of chapter 14... The secure future of the Lord's people. So in the midst of all this judgment and in the midst of the punishment against prideful Babylon and and we see the sovereignty of God, we also see the sovereignty of God in the preservation of his people. It says, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will be captive to those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. So a couple of things I want to point out here. First is the Lord has compassion on whom he chooses. And his choosing is not based on on those he chooses. His choosing is based on himself. And this is a reality that we cannot fully grasp. I've tried. Maybe you can grasp it. I don't fully understand it. But the amazing thing is, is that God is love. And he is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and grace. And he chooses people to bestow his love upon, not based on them, but based on his own character. And so the Bible pretty clear that Israel and, and all the faithful that come from the other nations, they are chosen based on God, not on them. And therefore, you know, why are some chosen and others? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that God chooses and I trust his character. And he, cho- he chooses based on his character, not on ours. And thank goodness for that because ha, the longer I'm alive, the more I realize I am in desperate need of God's grace. So, that's how he chooses. And by the way, um, the beautiful thing about being chosen by God is that he actually makes the unlovable lovely. Because like I mentioned earlier, you know, when you have been a Christian a while, you start to realize just how bad you are. (laughs) You know, you you get into this like kind of honeymoon phase with the Lord when you first come to the Lord, and you're like, oh, I'm not so bad. In fact, I'm pretty good, you know? I mean, look at all this work that God's doing in my life. And you do look better, right? You look better, and you're like, no wonder God chose me, right? And then you make a fool of yourself, and you keep doing that over and over again. And then you realize, wow, I can't believe God chose me, you know? Uh, That's what happens. And it's a beautiful process that brings us to the place in which we ought to be. But you need to know, Christian friend, he's actually making you lovely. He's making you that in which you were always meant to be. And that's an amazing thing. It says here that the aliens come and become Israelites. And so there's this role reversal in which those that are not of Israel come and become part of Israel and and are out of the judgment that is happening. They seek refuge and find refuge in God's people. Okay? And that's an amazing thing. And it can Continuing thing that we will see through these chapters, um, and also there's another reversal of roles, and that is the captors become the captives, <laughs> and so there are those that are um, not repenting, obviously, and they are becoming subservient to God's people after God's people were subservient to them. So you see this this victory that comes in Christ, and that is definitely one of the main messages. Of this section, Go, going further into chapter 14, we see the end of the king of Babylon. It says in uh, uh, in verses 11 through 15, it talks about the ambition, accomplishments, and pride that uh, the king of Babylon had. All of those things take him to Sheol. It says, "Look at verse 11." Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Isn't that nice? How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So, yeah, pridefulness doesn't get you too far with God. And that is exactly what's being communicated here. And also it tells us in this next verse in verse 16 that that he thought that his legacy and his kingdom would last forever, and that is not the case. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, and shook kingdoms. So, a great reversal of who he was to who he became to be. And the end of Assyria, which is talked about in this next section, uh, verses 24 through 27, is a sign to God's people that the prophecy of the future destruction of Babylon will come to pass. Okay? So, Assyria was taken out, um, and that is a sign to them that that Babylon will also be taken out. And then it moves on uh, in chapter 28 to Philistia, the Philistines, okay? And we see here in verses 28 through 32 of 14 that the Davidic dynasty will last, but not Philistia, okay? So Philistia, who thinks they're really great, and they've been a, a thorn in Israel's side for a long, long time, Um, they're not going to last. But the Davidic dynasty, which they think is gone, will continue forever. Okay? It says in verse 29 here, "'Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a a flying, fiery serpent.'" So, what we see here is that the Davidic line is going to be victorious. Now, the rod is a reference to a king, okay? And there is one particular king in Israel's history that was uh, a great nuisance to the Philistines, and that would be David, okay? So, David was the great slayer of Goliath, right? And that was just the beginning. He continued to uh, kill the Philistines left and right. And... Um, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, gathered 200 foreskins as a wedding present for his bride. And so that's special, right? Um, he, he killed a lot of Philistines and uh, God used him in that way. And they think, well, David's gone and, and you know, his line seems to be diminished. Wonderful. And the, the prophecy here is no. Um, His line will last forever. We know that his greater son, Jesus, is gonna reign for all of eternity and uh, his dynasty will last, but theirs will be no more. It also has an interesting imagery here of Jesus as a fire-breathing serpent, (laughs) a flying fire-breathing serpent, which is interesting, um, that, that from the adder, you know, comes this serpent that will vanquish and destroy, right? And if you're like me, when I was reading this passage, I was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Like, you know, normally we think of serpents to associate with the other guy, right? So we the great serpent of old, Satan, right? Uh, But there is some imagery in the Bible in terms of Jesus and serpents. And uh, one of those places is when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he tells Nicodemus in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. And the the picture of the bronze serpent uh, on the staff has been a symbol of healing um, and restoration uh, for a long, long time. Uh, literally ever since the time Moses did it, right? So, uh, that's been a symbol of that for a long time. And and Jesus is the full representation of that, that he was lifted up and he died for our sins. And those who look upon him and put their full weight down on him and what he did, well, then they will be healed and saved, right? So this correlation is not unheard of in the Bible, but it does make you think for a minute. Um, so the total end of Philistia will come and there will be... Uh, some real contrast between their, their immediate futures. There'll be the destruction of Philistia and the security of Zion and its people. Next we see in chapters 15 through 16 is we see Moab and the judgment that comes against Moab. Uh, we see here that uh, pride goes before the fall and we also see the conditions of Gentile hope in this particular oracle. Moab's pride is their downfall, we see in verses 1 through 9. And I want to bring your attention to verses 5 through 9, in which we see something interesting, that the Lord grieves over Moab, and he grieves over the, the punishment in which he is having to do in his righteousness and in his justice against the wicked, but he's grieving over it. It says here, my heart cries out for Moab. And then it goes on and it speaks about the weeping and the destruction and the desolation in verses five and six that is falling upon Moab. But the Lord is weeping over them. And it reminds us that God does not take pleasure in the punishment of evil. No more than any good loving parent takes pleasure in punishing their child. And if you are a parent and you're here and you know exactly what I'm talking about, is it is like the most unfun thing that we do as parents, is punish our children. We hate doing it. It's not any fun. And we don't like having to to bring forth that, that just consequence for the sin that it requires. That is not a fun activity. And it is not fun for God. And that's a good thing for us to remember. He is not just sitting up there and being like, I can't wait to smite that person. Like, that's not what he's doing. He doesn't want to do that. He sent his son so he wouldn't have to do that. It says in John chapter three, verse 17, that he did not come into the world to judge it, but in order to save it through him. He has no desire to pour forth his judgment. He wants to save us. And that is an important thing that is being brought out in this section against Moab. We also see, um, find my place here. Where am I? Oh, there I am. Okay. Uh, We also see in verses, in chapter 16, verses 1 through 14, the humble repentance is the condition for salvation in Messiah. So, those who choose through the judgment to actually repent of their sin will be saved. And that's one of the messages that we see throughout these oracles uh, in these 10 chapters is that there are those who actually repent. Not everybody stays hard-hearted and stiff-necked, you know? A lot of them do, and, and they suffer, suffer the full weight of the judgment. But then there are those who repent, and they seek asylum with Yahweh, and they find it, okay? Okay? So that's one of the things that's being brought out. We see in uh, verse 4 and 5 how they find security in Zion. So you have the refugees from Moab going out in chapter 16. They're going to Zion to find security. And it says here um, in verse 4, Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you and be a, a shelter to them from the destroyer, okay? So they're finding security, or they're looking for it anyway. And then we see uh, how to find security in Zion. It says, when the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased. Uh, By the way, the verbs here in this section are uh, both perfects and futures, uh, which means that it speaks to the fact that the suffering will end, It is a guarantee, okay? And that's just a little sidebar, not part of the main message. But it's an important thing to note that the suffering in which we experience in this age is temporary. (laughs) It's not going to last forever, even though it feels like at times that it's never going to end. Um, And some of the things that we suffer, we suffer for years and years and years and we think, when will this end? Well, one day it will you know even if it isn't in this age one day it will the suffering will not last and so that is an important thing to note here about the message of hope that we have in Jesus is that the evil and the suffering will not last the night will not last forever the day will come the morning and the sun will rise so we also see here in verses 6 through 8 that moab's pride pride produces Grief. Oh, I missed a part. So, I got hung up on the fact that um, suffering won't last. But then it goes on to continue in verse 5, telling us how in which we might find security in Zion. And it says, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice, and is swift to do righteousness. So obviously that's Jesus, right? So how do we find security? Well, we find security from the coming judgment in Jesus. That is the only way you find security (laughs) from the coming judgment is in Jesus, okay? But Moab's pride produces grief, we see here, because uh, many of them who were seeking refuge were not willing to do the thing that was required in order to find that refuge they were not willing to humble themselves. We have heard of the pride of Moab. Oh, how, pride, how proud he is. Of the arrogance, his pride, his insolence, in his ideal boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab, wail for Moab, let everyone wail. So his pride brings him to grief. And that is the truth about pride. Uh, many theologians uh, say this and I agree with the, the concept is that all sin stems from pride you know everything that we do that is wrong comes from a source of arrogance and pride where we're putting ourselves first before God and it brings nothing but grief the Lord grieves over Moab we see again in verses 9 through 12 Look at uh, verse 10 with me where it shows that all joy is brought to an end after it tells us in verse 9 that he weeps for them. So God is weeping for them and then all joy is brought to an end in verse 10. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field and in the vineyards. No songs are sung. No cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. So there is no more joy that is all coming to an end. Uh, he tells us in verse 11 that this hurts him more than it hurts them. Again, it's speaking to the fact that Yahweh does not want to punish people for their sin. He wants to save them from it. That is not his heart. He is not... this as people misunderstand the Bible, who have usually never read it, but they you know, claim that the God of the Old Testament is this horrible, vengeful God that just ang- is angry and smites people. And you read it, and you go, well, that's not actually the case. <laughs> you know, he's actually slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion, and, and he wants to forgive people, and he gives people every chance to repent and come to him. So... We see that clearly being brought out in his heart. This hurts me more than it hurts you. In verse 12, we see Moab will find no comfort in its false gods. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high places, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. And so there is no security to be found in the false gods that they hope in. The only... The only security is found in Jesus. And then we see that Moab's glory will turn to shame. Verse 14 here. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude and those who remain will be very few and feeble. So he was super great, and he really thought that he was secure, and he will be brought to nothing. And then we see in this next section, chapter seventeen through through eighteen seven, we see uh, an oracle against Damascus in northern Israel, and it speaks of how the work of man leads to destruction, but the work of God leads to preservation, okay? So two totally things. And so the message here is don't trust in your own ability. (laughs) Trust in Yahweh. That's the message in this section, okay, is that when you put your faith in yourself, you will find yourself lacking severely. So it starts off talking about Damascus here and how the political alliances have failed in verses one through three. And we see in Uh, verses 4 through 11, that Israel's destruction um, is going to happen, and also it speaks of its remnant as well. And so in verse 4, it says, and in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And so there's going to be this punishment against northern Israel. Um, But then it also goes on, To speak about how there is a remnant that will be saved. The remnant is restored in verses 7 through 8. It says, In that day, man will look to his maker. That's a good thing to do, right? And his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, to the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altar of incense. And so there's this realization of, hey, we've been trusting in ourselves. We've been focused on ourselves and not trusting in Yahweh. And there's this element of repentance there in which they're now looking to Yahweh and they're trusting in Him. And so they're being preserved from the judgment. And then we see um, in verse 9 through 11, we see the destruction of those who don't do that. In that day their strong city will be like the desert places of the wooded heights and the hilltops which they deserted before because of the children of Israel and there will be desolation for you will have forgotten the god of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge therefore though you plant Pleasant plants, and sow the vine branches of a stranger. Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incredible pain. So because you have chosen not to trust in Yahweh, but to trust in yourselves, there will be suffering. And that's again, that's the big idea, right, through all of this, whether you're trusting, you know, it's all about trusting in your own might, you know. That's what Babylon was doing and Philistia was doing and Moab was doing, what uh, Damascus is doing, what um, northern Israel is doing. They're trusting in their own might, and it brings devastation and desolation. He goes on and it talks about how <clears throat> the Lord's power is greater than all of their power in chapter 18. We see, um, in the second part of verse two through verse three, that the power of the nation is defeated. <clears throat> Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty in conquering whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look when a trumpet is blown here. And so here we see that there is going to be this defeat of the powerful nations and the people should pay attention to it. And then in verse seven we see how the powerful nation can be redeemed. At that time, tribute will be brought. So we have another picture here of uh, repentance. A tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the river divides, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. And so there is an element here that decides that they're going to actually humble themselves and repent and bow the knee to Yahweh. And again, judgment can and should bring repentance and salvation. And by the way, that is a great thing to remember in your own life, okay? (laughs) If you mess up and you suffer consequences for something... God has a purpose in that, and it isn't just so you get punished. (laughs) That's not what God does it for. God does it in order to bring you to repentance and to bring you to healing. And on the other side of that, when you lean into it, you are so much better off. It's an amazing thing. And so I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself in that kind of situation where you messed up and you're suffering consequences, that isn't just for the sake of suffering. That is for the sake of restoration. That is for the sake of healing so you can grow from it and be restored, okay? So there's beauty in the midst of suffering when you choose to repent and seek God. Now we come, we're approaching the end of this main section of uh, this first section of oracles and we come to chapters 19 and 20 in which it speaks of Egypt, which is super interesting speaks of Egypt. And what's interesting about it is the message that is within Egypt and the judgment against it, where we see one God, one world, and one people, which is a really unexpected thing about the judgment against Egypt. And so we see here that there's the smiting of Egypt that is predicted in verses 1 through 15, which is super engaging. If you want to read it later, you can, but that's what happens in that first part is that is the prophecy of the, of the future smiting of Egypt. And then we see what I want to hone in on is the healing of Egypt, which is super cool. So there's the prophecy of the coming um, judgment against Egypt, but then there is the healing of Egypt. And look with me at verse 16, verses 16 through 17, where we see they will fear the Lord Egypt will fear the Lord. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And some of you women are like, hey, what do you mean they're going to be like women? That's just, you know, here's what it is. And verse 17, and the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. So there's, you know, this Real fear that comes, and that it's a good fear. It is the fear of the Lord, it's the fear of Yahweh, and the fear of the fact that they will be squashed if they continue to reject Yahweh. And that's a good fear to have, okay? When the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord, that's really what it means to honor God as God, to realize, oh, you can squash me. Like that is a good understanding to have when it comes to God, is that He's God, you're not, and he, you owe Him your allegiance. Okay? That is what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And to not have it is complete lunacy. Okay? So they come to the point where they realize, oh, we should probably be afraid of Yahweh. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purposes that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. So they realize, oh, God is going to smite us. We better start fearing Him. And that is a good realization to have. And so they come to the realization that they need to fear the Lord. And this is another great reversal. We see these reversals throughout these oracles in which people are going from one thing to another, right? And so they were the enemies of God, and now they're fearing God, and now they're coming into sanctuary with God. What an incredible reversal. And it speaks of, in verse 18, one language and and one Lord. Verses 19 through 22, let's look at that. The Lord will make himself known and they will worship him. Look at this. Starting in verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord and its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. So there's this element of restoration. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. That's amazing. Like, isn't that awesome? Like, here's Egypt, and and they are coming into fellowship with Yahweh. And then we see in verses 23 through 25, the unity that is found in the Lord. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. These are places that are not nice places, right? And here they are coming together together and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. So you got the Egyptians and the Assyrians, and they're worshiping Yahweh. Verse 24, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's awesome, right? And so you see those that are repenting and those who are coming into the fold, and they are one flock, as Jesus spoke about in John's gospel, and he is their shepherd. And, and there's this amazing unity that is taking place because of the repentance of those who are under judgment. And then it goes on, and it speaks in chapter 20 of the, of the smiting of unrepentant Egypt, Okay. Um, but we will skip over that. And then briefly, holy mackerel, I need to hurry up. And then briefly, um, <laughs> the, uh, I'm going to have to just kind of paraphrase this last set of oracles. Okay, so the, the last set of oracles that we see in these next three chapters are against, like I mentioned, um, you can flip the next slide if you could please, the, it is against the idolatry um, the religious idolatry of this age, and and what it does is it goes through and it it, it pinpoints again a lot of the same places. It starts off with Babylon, but it, it's not talking about the the country anymore. It's talking about the idolatry of Babylon and the gods that they worship. And it declares in in verses eight and nine how those gods are brought no more. They're completely destroyed. They have fallen. They are no more. In verses eight and nine, and and then there's this question of well, how long until the morning comes this is this great night and this great destruction that's happening in in verses eleven through twelve and and the answer is um, it's going to be a while, but it will end. there's going to come an end as we saw before, but um, it's longer than we would like and isn't that true about all the suffering in our life? <laughs> it's longer than we would like <laughs> when is this going to end? well, not yet <laughs> okay, so that's kind of the answer there and and then we see the judgment on the Arabian tribes in verses thirteen through seventeen. Jerusalem and the unforgivable sin we see in chapter twenty-two, verses one through twenty-five. Wish we had time to look through it, but it talks about how they were self-sufficient; that they were they considered themselves all good. They didn't need Yahweh, and that is a great sin. And the the unforgivable sin is not to repent and put your hope in Jesus, okay? That is the unforgivable sin. And when you look at the works of God and you reject them outright and you say, I'm not going to believe and I'm going to trust in myself, well then, God doesn't forgive that. That is the one thing he doesn't forgive. He forgives everything else, but you can't do that, okay? And so that's the unforgivable sin that's described there. And then um, lastly in that section... There's this amazing transformation with Tyre, okay, another uh, Gentile place in which there's a transformation that goes from pridefulness to holiness. There is repentance that takes place. The Lord's plan was to humble the prideful. That's exactly what took place. But in the midst of that humbling, the converted prostitute, Tyre, is now blessing God's people with their wealth and that they are brought into the fold. So you see this again in the second set. It kind of mirrors the first, okay? And what I want to do with the remainder of our time, four minutes, um, is go over three things. You can turn to the next slide, please. Uh, Three things to remember about God's judgment, okay? I will forewarn you, I will not be done in four minutes, but I'll be done as soon as possible, okay? So here are the three things. Three things. Uh, that I want us to remember about God's judgment, okay? First is God is pouring out his righteous wrath on all unrighteousness. And that's an important thing to understand about these oracles is it is speaking of that inevitable truth, that God will pour out his righteous wrath on all unrighteousness, okay? Secondly, God is totally sovereign over human history. That's the second thing that I'm going to point out, he's totally sovereign over human history, and that's a huge thing for us to remember. And thirdly, when we trust in Jesus alone, we are transformed, okay? So let's look at these three things. First, God is pouring out his righteous wrath on all unrighteousness. He is opposed to the proud, okay? God is opposed to the proud. So that is a great message to us, not to be prideful, right? So if God is opposed to that, don't do that. And the opposite of pridefulness is humility, okay, to be humble, um, which sometimes take humiliation to get there. But it'd be nice if it didn't, right? It'd be nice if we just simply humbled ourselves before God instead of having to be humiliated in order to get there. So he's opposed to the proud. It says in James 4:6, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, okay? He is also against the idolater, Okay? So he opposes the proud. He's also against the idolater, those who um, worship something other than him. And that's really what all idolatry is, is when you devote yourself to something other than Yahweh, when Yahweh is not the most important thing in your life, okay, that when he does not take the center stage, it's idolatry. Okay, and, and even as Christians, we fall into idolatry all the time. I fall into idolatry all the time where I, I realize it. I'm like, oh, I am loving myself. I'm loving this, that, or the other thing more than I love Yahweh, and I need to change that, okay? So it is something we all struggle with even when we're saved, but he is against the idolatry. It says in Colossians 3, 5 through 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Okay? So when we put ourselves first, what happens is we start doing all these other things. Right? And all these things are, are idolatry. All these different sins come from pridefulness and us loving ourselves more than we love God. Okay? So self-love and self-trust. That's what we don't want to do. <clears throat> And then also, he will, put, he will punish the unrepentant. So those who refuse to repent, they're going to be punished. Um, this is the unforgivable sin, like I mentioned, and to call the works of God evil and to reject his salvation, that is the one thing God doesn't forgive. Okay? So make note of that. And then God's heart is that his judgment will bring repentance. That's, I've been touching on that all night, and that is so huge in this is that his heart within the judgment is that we would come to repentance, that we would stop being stubborn, that we would stop being stiff-necked and hard-hearted, and that we would receive the free gift of salvation. That's what he wants. He doesn't want us to suffer, okay? God is calling us from pride, idolatry, and rebellion to humility, faith, and loyalty. Secondly, God is totally sovereign over human history. God has given us ample evidence that he is in charge, Ample evidence, okay? Human history is full of it. We read the Bible and we see over and over and over again that God was there the whole time. You know, the famous line in Genesis 50 from Joseph where he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Like, that's what we see throughout human history and throughout our own lives, we see it. That bad things befall us and yet good comes out of it all the time. It's amazing, and so we need to put our full weight down on that. Our faith is not blind, but it is founded on evidence. It's not blind faith. You know, people tend to think that faith is like wishful thinking. That's not what it is. Faith is like solid confidence in the realities in which we can see or evident in the evidence that is before us, okay? So that's what we're called to do, but we're called to live by faith and not by sight, which means We are living faithfully and we do have to take steps of faith knowing that the greater truth is true based on the lesser fulfillments that have happened already. Does that make sense to you guys? And so we live in that faith where we know that the ultimate truth is true. We know that the end is coming. We know that the kingdom of God is gonna be a reality forever for all of us, okay? We know those greater things because of the lesser fulfillments that have taken place. And so we live by faith and not by sight. John Piper says, I don't know how people pray who don't believe in the sovereignty of God to do the impossible. Because all the things I want to happen are impossible. (laughs) If they're possible, I'd do them, end quote, okay? I love John Piper and we, we should realize that, that if we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we should pray earnestly for the things that are beyond us. And most of the things that we're concerned about are beyond us, (laughs) okay? So we should pray about it. Um, And then also, uh, no matter how bad it gets, there is always hope for those who trust in Jesus. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how awful the suffering is in your own life or in the world around you, there's always hope for us who trust in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head, end quote. Okay, so when life is hard, then you rest in the truth that God's got it, that he knows exactly what he's doing, even though your life is miserable right now. John Piper says this, the presence of hope in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear, end quote. So as we put our full weight down on the reality that nothing can thwart the will of God, nothing, then we don't have to be afraid because the one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine, he's in charge. And that's a good thing to remember. And so thirdly, the last part here, when we trust in Jesus alone, we are transformed. And this is the beautiful gospel message of all this judgment, right? When we trust in him, we are transformed from enemies to beloved children, from death to life, and from victims to victors, okay? I want to flesh these three things out. So we're transformed from enemies to beloved children. It says in Romans 5.8, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the amazing thing. When we were enemies of God, when we did not love him, when we had, had no thought of loving him back, he died for us. And it says in John 1.12 that, but to all who did receive him, everyone who receives Jesus, who believes in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now that's an amazing truth. So he takes us and he transforms us through faith from enemies to beloved children. And I think we take that for granted because we have this notion in the world that everyone's God's child and that's just not true, you know. Um, to be God's child you have to belong to Christ and to be God's child also means that you are a co-heir with Christ in the heavenly realities and that means that you are going to be seated with Jesus reigning and ruling over all creation That, that is craziness like that's amazing that's what we go from we go from those who are smited for the evil that we do justly so to being those who reign and rule with Christ forever that's stunning Like, absolutely stunning. What an incredible transformation. We also go from death to life. Ephesians 2, 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so there's this incredible transformation in which he takes, like I mentioned before, all of your badness, and he puts it on himself, and he takes all of his goodness, and he gives it to you. And he doesn't just do that metaphorically he does it supernaturally he takes his very life and he puts it within you you are sealed with the holy spirit you belong to god you're his forever and his life reigns in you and the the more you grow in that truth and that reality in your heart and your mind the more you trust in it the more his spirit transforms you from the inside out And He makes you that in which you were meant to be. It's absolutely incredible that you were transformed from death to life. It says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this newness of life that He has given to us in His grace then empowers us with His Spirit to do the good things that He has already prepared for us to do for Him through his power and his strength. Charles Spurgeon has another great quote that I want to share with you about how this has worked out. He says, The child of God works not for life, but from life. He does not work to be saved, but works because he is saved. End quote. That's why we do what we do. is because we have his life in us and we are so like amazed at the fact that God loves us and that we belong to him and because of the life that we now have, we go forth in his power to do that which he has called us to do. It is not so that we can earn his love. It's been freely given. And it's amazing. And lastly, from victims to victors, through Jesus we have victory over sin and death. It's just absolutely incredible when you think about it. In Romans 6, verses 17 through 18, says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. This is what we've been talking about, right? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. This is a supernatural work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in which we are able genuinely to desire that which we're supposed to <laughs> to do the will of god out of a natural desire in our hearts that's a challenge and a battle and we don't have time to talk about all that but it's the truth that we stand in that's why it says in 1 corinthians 15:55 oh death where is your victory O death where is your sting Because we have been liberated spiritually from death in the power of the Holy Spirit and we will not suffer the second death. And that's an amazing truth. And it gives us victory from hopelessness. Victory from hopelessness. I'm gonna end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know that I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in him. And if he falls, I shall fall with him. But if he does not, I shall not. Because he lives, I also Live. And I spring to my legs again and fight with my depressions of spirit and get the victory through it. And so may you do. And so you must, for there is no other way of escaping from it. End quote. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that we would live in your victory that we would live in the freedom in which you have given us from sin, from death, and from the difficulty of life. And I pray that we would live by faith, that we would trust you more and more every day, and that your sovereignty would truly be our comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.